Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. A little bit different kind of Christmas message today. I'm going to start by... um, going back to Exodus. And uh, just, it's been a long time since we've done a straight, uh, well, we haven't spent a whole lot of time in the Old Testament, uh, especially in those early books. But you remember, of course, that when God entered into covenant with Abram, Abraham, he told him that he was going to Uh, bless him, make him a blessing, and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Okay? He was going to raise up a people. He didn't look across at the nations, at the neighborhoods, at the different gatherings of people. And we're still early in Genesis, you understand, when this covenant took place, uh, and, and choose a people. He chose a man and told him, I'm going to out of you, I'm going to bring a new nation. These are going to be my people, your children, the children ultimately known as Israel. And uh, many, many years later, uh, as Joseph, you can, you can go back into Genesis and read this story. I know most of you are quite familiar with it. But Joseph is sold into slavery. He winds up in Egypt and interprets the Pharaoh's dreams and rescues the nation of Egypt from a famine that is going to strike the entire region and enriches Egypt because people suffering from that that famine have to come and buy grain from Joseph. And Joseph's brothers, Joseph's family, ends up being invited to Egypt as honored guests because they are relatives of Joseph, and uh, he's the one who saved their country. But then you fast forward 400 years, uh, and the goodwill that Joseph and his immediate family enjoyed has faded. Uh, They forgot how much they owed, basically, Israel uh, because of Joseph. But also, they'd become fearful because the people of Israel had become so numerous. And the Egyptians looked around and said, this is not a good scene. We've got all these foreigners living here. What if they rise up? What if they realize how many they are? So they start oppressing them and keeping them down. And they even start a policy uh, where they try to murder uh, every male child. But things are becoming difficult. And after all of these years, now keep in mind, they don't have a Bible. Never mind the New Testament. They don't have an Old Testament. They have promises that have been passed down from generation to generation. And there was a promise in there about how God would bring them out of Egypt into the land that God had promised Abraham centuries ago. But when you're honored guests of this powerful nation, what's your hurry? Kind of like we are sometimes, right? We've been promised heaven, but when things are really going well for us here on earth, what's the hurry, right? So, but when things got bad, they start remembering, we have a God who promised us something better than this. And it says here in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Please do not get hung up on that word, remember. We've talked about this before, and I promise you, it does not mean that God forgot about them for 400 years. When he remembered, it means he decided to act at this time. It also means, just as we are told to put God in remembrance of his promises, that he's responding to them and their cries. Okay, not that he needed reminded, but it's just one more example of how we are involved very much in the processes of God and the business of heaven. When did God move? When Israel cried out. So 
He acknowledged them. And then we've got all this wailing and the moaning, the crying out for deliverance. And again, moving very quickly through this, uh, we know what happened. God raises up Moses. And there are, all, there are the plagues. There are all these things that God used to alternately soften and harden Pharaoh to get him to release his people, let his people go. And the final one, the Passover, the death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. And finally, they are released. Out they go, and they didn't go out struggling. Uh, they, they went out with gifts from the Egyptians. They loaded them down with silver and gold. There was not one feeble among their tribe. They didn't go limping out of Egypt. They went out in strength. And then Pharaoh said, what am I doing? Sends the army after them, and then the sort of the great final deliverance miracle of the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. The army behind them, the Red Sea before them, and Moses stretches out his staff over the sea. The waters part. They walk across on dry land. They didn't go slopping through the mud, as some movies show. The land was dry. They cross. In goes the army after them, and God allows the sea to close up over them, and then they are free. It's beautiful. And Israel's perspective at this point, keep in mind, they don't have a deep theology. They don't have the written word. They have ideas, they have promises, they have stories that have been passed down. And here's more or less their perspective. Our God is bigger than their gods. He has rescued us from oppression and is taking us someplace for our sake. What they probably didn't understand, certainly as well as they should have, was that there were no other gods. That they were the people of the only God, the one true God, and that God was taking them out of Egypt for his purposes. They were going to benefit from us, but God had a much bigger plan. He had something much bigger in mind than giving his people rest from their labors in Egypt. He was taking them uh, to a much higher central place in his plan. And what was that plan? To save all of humanity. The Exodus, while it was an immediate and felt answer to prayer, when God delivered them from Egypt... This was God moving, acting out, manifesting the promise he made to Abraham. And in you, all the families of the world will be blessed. This is how he's doing it. One way he's doing it. So, then we have this uh, amazing scene at Sinai. They've been rescued the pursuing army has been killed, has been drowned. And then God pauses them at Sinai for months. For like nine months, they're camped out there while God basically introduces himself. This is when they get the Bible. This is when Moses starts writing everything God tells him down. And one of these great things that happens right there is God delivers the law. And it was not like, I mean... Uh, wasn't like, well, all the Israelites just kind of uh, piddled around and wondered where Moses went for, for 40 days. No, he had the whole nation come to the mountain. And he says, Moses and Aaron, you come up here, but have the people stop. Here's a boundary. I want you to come this near, but don't cross this line. Don't touch the mountain. Don't try to follow Moses. Um, because I've consecrated Moses and Aaron for this particular job. But I want you to see some things. I want you to feel some things. I want you to hear some things. And listen what they saw, what they witnessed. In uh, Exodus, uh, what's that next scripture I gave you? What chapter are we in? I just have the verse written down here. Where's my uh, scripture, people? I think it's 20. 19 or 20. Let me just read it to you anyway. Here's the, the verse, the beginning in verse 18, and they can maybe catch up with this. Are they, they have it up there? No? All the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain, 
It's not two. Huh? 2018. I think that's, I thought that's what I said, didn't I? Yeah, I thought it was 20. 2018. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. They said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. And that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Now, again, they weren't supposed to go running up the mountain. But God wanted them close enough to smell the smoke, to see the fire and feel its heat, to feel the quaking of the ground, to hear the thunder and see the lightning. This was a very powerful and, yes, scary, physical, visible manifestation of God's presence, right? And the people, when they hear this, what was their response? Nope, we're too close. We've seen enough. We've heard enough. Moses, we'll listen to you. You listen to God. This, this is too scary. And so they didn't come as close as they were allowed. They kept their distance. And Moses says, no, no, no. This is good. When you are close to God, God wants you near. And yeah, it's good to have a good, healthy fear of him. And this is the benefit. What's the benefit? So that you won't sin. When you are in the physical manifest presence of God, you have to make a pretty conscious decision to sin. And you are much less likely to make it. Please understand something here. We get this backwards. We get this idea, and I think this is what robs people of intimacy with God more than anything else by far. It's not that it's so much work. Oh, I got to spend so much time studying and praying and praising. It's that we're afraid that if we get too close to God, uh, it's going to expose something about us. Or we know we can't get any closer to God than we are because we haven't cleaned ourselves up enough. We should know better than this. And we do when it comes to salvation. And if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody, you have surely told them, you don't need to straighten out your life. Come as you are. God wants you. His desire, the whole reason he gave Jesus is because you can't straighten yourself up. You can't save yourself. You can't cleanse yourself from sin. Come and receive this free gift of salvation, right? I mean, that's, that's amen. And then we receive it. And it's just like it, the exodus. We've been saved. We've been rescued from our oppression, from our bondage. And now God says, and now come get to know me. And we're like, ooh, the closer I get, the more that fire is hot, the more it burns. And it can be a little painful, right? But what's the result? The presence of God cleanses us. We can't, on our own efforts, continue to clean ourselves up any more than by our own efforts we could save ourselves. But it requires us to be close to God. Israel says, we got what we want. We're out of Egypt. Ah, we're not sure how, we, how close we want to get to this God who rescued us. We'll take the rescue, but we're going to stay here safely on the fringe of his presence. And this was the pattern, sadly, for the next several hundred years, through the period of the judges, through the period of the kings. Long repetition of crying out for God's interve intervention and rescue, and all the while resisting intimacy with him right up to the captivity. And we have Isaiah prophesying 
in the days leading up to the actual captivity, but certainly prophesying during the downfall of Judah. And keep in mind, they know, they know they're hit. Now they have the Bible. They don't have the whole thing, but they've got the law. They've got prophets. They've got Psalms, and they've got all this wisdom, and, and they understand it. Their theology is becoming more complete, and they know who they are now. They are God's chosen people. They are a blessed nation. And they know what their covenant rights are. And now they're looking around in these other nations on the rise. The Assyrians, the Babylonians. These are a terror. And they're wondering, how can any nation be even becoming greater than us? If we are God's people. And they start, because of the ministry of the prophets, they realize it's because you didn't uphold your end of the covenant. Your sin has brought this on. This was all prophesied. This was all warned about clear back in Deuteronomy. And now it's happening. You shouldn't be surprised. And so the people pray, and Isaiah expresses this, their prayers in, in, in his prayer here in Isaiah chapter 64, how they, once again, we are going to cry out for rescue. All right, we've blown it. But we still have a God to cry out to. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. should highlight that. That the nations that's everybody but Israel, may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for, for us, which we, uh, for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. You remember <clears throat> who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we have need to be saved. But we are, like, we are all like an unclean thing, and our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O oh Lord, No, remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Now again, they acknowledge his interventions in the past. They acknowledge their sin as a factor. And... They don't always like the way God chose to answer their cries. But look at this, what this longing for a day when what? They don't just generally say, oh, help us out here, God. Rend the heavens. Cause, like, remember when you made the mountains tremble? Like he did back at the Exodus, and they're like, yeah, we don't want any of that. When he manifested himself, showed himself that powerful to cause the earth to shake and the mountain, you see, picture this volcano going off. And they're like, yeah, we don't want any roses. You can witness that. You come and tell us what God says in the middle of all that. Now they're saying, please do this. Why? So it'll scare our enemies. Make yourself known to our adversaries with this mighty power. The very thing that God wants to do in their midst, for what purpose? Getting the sin out of their midst, which brought all this trouble to them in the first place. They're saying, why don't you just show up in this cloud of smoke and fire and lightning and thunder and earthquakes and just scare them off? Scared us off? They're acknowledging their sin, but they're not quite acknowledging that it's their closeness to God that is going to drive that sin away. 
Ultimately, this is a cry for Messiah, a cry for the very thing that God had promised. You know, we do talk about this every year, even Christmas and at Easter, when God was ultimately fulfilling his promise and ultimately answering their deepest prayer. Lord God, send Messiah. Lord God, uh, Hosanna, save now. He was going to the cross to save them now. They didn't like the way he was going to answer that prayer. Now, send Messiah. They didn't like the way he answered that prayer either. We know the Messiah they were looking for. It's a military leader, right? This is us, unfortunately, too. We want God to be powerfully, manifestly present when we desperately need deliverance, rescue, healing. And we want, when we have the option anyway, to remain just distant enough from him that our sin will not burn up in his presence. All the while, failing to recognize that the sin, not our circumstances, is the real problem God gave Jesus to solve. Hear that? We recognize that our sin will cause us problems. And we want God to fix the problem. Rescue us. But God wants to eliminate the sin. There is a, uh, you know, Moses had it right. Don't be afraid. You can't change God into the God you want him to be, but he can change you into the people he wants you to be. So let him. Let him. There is a beautiful illustration. I'm going to read kind of a longish passage from C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. I know I, I referenced Lewis last week. It's a Lewis kind of Christmas. But uh, I don't know how many of you have read The Great Divorce. It's not quite as well known as The Screwtape Letters or The Chronicles of Narnia, but it's one of my favorites. But like, like Screwtape Letters, if you open this book and read it, you will learn a lot, you will see a lot. Just don't look. And this is from Lewis himself. This is not doctrine. This is not theology. This is an illustration. And if you can't see it as an illustration, then don't read it. But it's a beautiful illustration, and it starts off, uh, and it's been years since I read it cover to cover. I was just looking for this one passage, and I found it, and it's a short book. Uh, there's like a, this dark city and a bus that takes people from this city to heaven. And what it reveals, as you, if you read between the lines, is this is, this is uh, Lewis's, uh, I think, more or less uh, 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 an actual representation of Lewis's own belief in purgatory. We do not believe the Bible teaches purgatory. I don't believe in purgatory. Most, I don't think any of you do either. Lewis did, although he defined it and saw it differently than the Roman Catholic Church did. Neither here nor there. This is a story, and it's still a useful story. But people who would take this bus to go to heaven, but they had a choice to make when they got there. Here's what, so they got to see what heaven was like. They might even get a chance to talk to loved ones who were there who would try to convince them. But they couldn't take everything with them. Certain things had to be left behind. And so we had these amazing views, these different individual stories of people who choose not to go to heaven because they love their sin too much. And uh, as he's having this conversation, it shows this really sick scene of a woman who loves her son so much that she smothers her son with her love and keeps him from ever knowing true freedom in Christ. And as a result, she stays in hell and may keep her son in hell is what it looks like. <clears throat> but while they're having a conversation, uh, th this is our visitor, the, 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 our main guy who has this dream. Okay, and he's sharing with this in a book. This is what this is what the how the Lord showed him some things. And uh, I will read this slightly edited for length and content. But it says this, and all these people, by the way, and one of the things I absolutely love about about this story is what he describes heaven as much more real and much more solid. Lewis's 
description of the earth that has become very famous is he calls these the shadow lands. That everything here, even though it seems real to us, is just its smoke, its vapor, its shadows compared to how solid and bright and real and eternal heaven is. And it's so, it's so solid and so different that uh, in these bodies, unprotected, we couldn't survive being hit by a raindrop in heaven. It would be like uh, going down and being hit with, with diamonds that were falling from the sky. Uh, that's how solid everything is. So anyway, he's getting these, getting these pictures. And all of the people who are coming who have not yet been officially made members of the kingdom of heaven, they're, they're referred to as ghosts because, again, they are insubstantial compared to the angels and the other people uh, and, and the people who live in, and inhabit this kingdom. So he says this, I saw coming toward us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. And the mountains represent where God lives, the highest place in heaven. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than man and so bright that I could hardly look at him. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go on home. Would you like me to make him quiet? Part. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well... That's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? <laughs> well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward. But it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back, run back by tonight's bus and, and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come back again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me in pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking? Before, before I knew. It would all be over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be the, only the sort of ghost, not the real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? 
and I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent, you might say, quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost? I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. He says, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Blast you, go on, can't you? Get it over, do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it, broken back on the turf. Ow, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, not much taller, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. As it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered. Suddenly, I stared back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen, silvery white but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees shook. The, man, the new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness, one cannot distinguish them in that country, which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped on the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew what was happening. There was riding. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star far off on the green plain and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then, like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed to be impossible steeps quicker every moment till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning." He says, his teacher there asks him, do you understand all this? He says, I don't know if I understand it all, sir. Am I right in thinking that the lizard really turned into the horse? Aye, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir, but does it mean everything? Everything that is in us can go on to the mountains. And the answer was nothing, not even the best and noblest can go on as it is now. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared to a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. I know that was kind of long, and I left some stuff out. Again, you can, I, I kind of recommend you reading that. But we can't, you and I, the solution for getting intimate with God is not to tame our appetites. You know, Paul uses the word appetite uh, much in a much broader sense than just uh, hunger for food. It's an appetite, a desire for anything that pulls us away from God. And some of these appetites are, from the human perspective even, uh, 
much uglier and much more harmful than other appetites. And, the, and, and this lizard obviously represented lust, sexual lust. This guy found it embarrassing, but he had caved into it so long that he thought if he could just keep it quiet, keep it tame, that's all that was necessary. And it's like, no, this has to be killed. But when we submit it to God, when we bring these things to God and say, kill them, burn all of this, we sing these songs, talk about just being burned up in his presence. The fire of God fall on us. It's going to hurt, but it's not going to kill us. It's going to make us more alive. And I just love this picture. You take this thing, let even these desires be sown as seeds, falls to the ground and dies, right? And God raises it up into an appetite for something that is good, that is helpful, that glorifies him and blesses us. So, again, the picture is not us making ourselves good enough for God, God's presence, but trusting God's presence to change us, believing that his presence is good for us. And so, when the fullness of time had come, and the Messiah was to arrive, once again, we have talked many, many times about how the people wanted Messiah to arrive. They weren't thinking about his birth. They weren't thinking about his background. They were thinking about him showing up on the scene and delivering them. From what? From Rome. And we see that to be the people God has called us to be, we have to approach him. We have to draw near to him. And my question for you at this time of year is, does God make that easy, or does God make that difficult? I understand it was a little scary to walk up close to that mountain when the earth is shaking and there is fire and smoke and thunder and lightnings. And God says, I want you close so that you might not sin. But all of this was a demonstration. These were types, these were shadows. But the message God was showing them back then is, I am the God, I am God, I am the God, I am the only God, I am holy, I am powerful. Come this far and no further because you can't in your present state survive my presence. You need a Savior. Meanwhile, here's the law. The Savior's coming, the Messiah's coming, and we're thinking, oh my goodness, if this is what God looked like, if this is how he demonstrates himself, what is this Messiah going to look like? Is he going to be easy to approach? Any easier than this mountain? And then we read in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And I think it is a powerful statement of God's desire for intimacy with us that Jesus came as a baby. Because what is more approachable, what is less threatening than a baby? And Jesus retained this charm, this approachability into adulthood. Children flocked to him. The multitudes pressed in on him. It is an almost inconceivable act of condescension that the holy God manifested himself in such a way that sinners would boldly reach out to him and long for his touch. Now it's true that the multitudes often had a particular reason. They wanted healing. They wanted his healing touch. They wanted the food that he could give them. But Jesus absolutely manifested this truth, that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we can ask or think. They all wanted one or two specific things from Jesus, but he was going to answer their heart's prayer to a much greater degree than they could have imagined at that moment. We talk about all we want for Christmas. And God answers our prayers, our fervent, effectual, faith-filled prayers in ways that exceed exactly what we are asking for. 
He doesn't think like we do. His ways are not our ways, right? But they're not different in terms of being opposite. They are just so much higher than our ways. Good is still good. Bad is still bad. We say, ah, who knows how God sees things. You know, what we see as good, he might see as bad and vice versa because his ways aren't our ways. No, his ways are just so much higher. But often what we are asking for is too small. God being good answers with more than we ask for. We ask for victory over our enemies. And God says, if your ways please me, I will make your enemies be at peace with you. Which is better? You know, and this, I love how art reflects this so many times. There's always a great story when, uh, when the good guy beats the bad guy, but doesn't it move you even more when the bad guy is redeemed, sees the error in his way, and becomes a good guy? God says, if your ways please me, I'll make even your enemies to be at peace with you. We want deliverance from the effect of sin in our lives. We want deliverance from the results, from the consequences of sin. God says, I will deliver you from sin itself. Because once again, we fail to see that the worst effect of sin in our lives is not poverty, it's not sickness, but it's a barricade and a hindrance to our relationship with God. Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. We cannot drive that sin out by an act of will. We know, again, coming full circle, we know that we can't save ourselves. Once we have accepted his gift of salvation, let us continue to draw near and let the fire of his presence burn out of us everything that is unfit for his presence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. We understand that prayer. We have prayed prayers like it, whether we realize it or not. But God wants to do so much more. I'm going to come. I'm going to manifest my presence in your life. And the nations are going to respond. They're going to respond to you because of my power in your life. Not because I've made you, I've, put, I've allowed you to put your foot on their neck but because they're going to see how powerfully you yourself have been delivered by me. They're going to see how my presence in your life has changed your life for the better, has blessed you, and you are going to tell them that, that I desire the same intimacy with them. Stand up with me. God desires this closeness with you, this nearness. He came near to mankind, came to be God with us because he desires that relationship more than anything. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. We do need him, and sometimes we don't love him. It's become a little bit of a cliche. We say, well, we, we spend too much time seeking his hand and not enough time seeking his face. But God offers his hands. But we find our, our hands full and our lives full when we do seek his face. I love this illustration from, uh, I believe it was Mark Hankins telling this story about one of his grandsons would sit up on his lap. And he'd say, he'd start talking to me. He'd start telling me things. And he'd start telling me what he wanted. But he would get right in my face so that all he could see was me. And all I could see was him. And when we were face to face like that, there is nothing that I have the power to give that I would not give that kid. 
when what we are seeking is to get close to God, there's not, and it tells us this, we don't have to guess about this. He withholds nothing. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If he, he who did not spare his own son, how he will not, how will he not freely with him also freely, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? More blessed to give than to receive. He's a good father. He enjoys giving. What can we give him? That intimacy. This is what he paid for. It wasn't just, I'm going to save you from hell. I want you in a relationship with me where we can enjoy this. And you will enjoy it more when that sin is burned out of your life. So let me fix that for you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. He doesn't say, oh, 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 before you come any closer, clean yourself up. Not enough that I saved you? No, he says, come up here closer. You'll find that stuff falling off, burning off. You won't be able to stand it in my presence. You understand how I feel, how I can't stand it. That lizard will get uncomfortable. So here's my first question. Every single person who's ever been born, except for Jesus, needs a Savior. You know, that occurred to me. This isn't some great insight. Uh, Adam and Eve, as far as we know, didn't have any children before the fall. Now, it doesn't absolutely say they didn't, but the first children it tells us about them having were born after Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus was the only one born without sin. Adam was created without sin. Eve was created without sin. But Jesus was the first to be born without sin. And we need that perfect, sinless sacrifice to pay for our sin. And he paid it on purpose gladly for the joy that was set before him. And he freely offers us this salvation. There really is a heaven. And it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be so much more real than this. But right now, we, unless we have been born again, we're not fit for heaven. Jesus' blood makes us fit for heaven. There's nothing we can do to be right with God. There really is a hell, and it is for those who refuse the free gift of salvation. Say, well, I'm not that bad a person. Yes, you are. Every one of us is that bad a person without Jesus. The only hope is to recognize that when Jesus went to the cross, he went there carrying your sin and my sin. All we have to do is say, yes, Lord. I do need you. I need you to be my Savior. I need you to be my Lord. We give him that life, and then once we have been born again, once we have been saved, once we've been counted among the children of God, then we grow in that grace, we grow in that relationship. And this time of year and year-round, we bring that offering of worship, of friendship, of intimacy with God. That is why he, which is what he purchased us for in the first place. He didn't just say, okay, you're free from hell. Now do what you want. He's like, you're free from hell. Now draw near to me. That's why I created you for. If you've never made that decision, and you're saying, well, and this is where so many people are. I want that. I do know that those high places, heaven is the ultimate good but I really am enjoying this lizard on my shoulder right now. It might not be sexual lust. It might be something else. But you know it ain't God. And it doesn't bother you. Except maybe a little bit in moments like this. Mostly it's something that... Eh, I know probably one of these days I'll get serious about God, but I'm enjoying this too much right now. And God's like, oh, that thing is going to, that thing will kill you if you don't let me kill it. So here's my invitation. 
stop worrying about, I know if, if you're just smart enough to say, I want heaven, I don't want hell, I know God is right, I know I'm wrong, I'm just not ready to give this up, it, just come before him. Take that step and say, Lord, save me. I'm coming before you. I can't not want this stuff, but you can take this desire from me. You can take this sin from me. You can burn it up in your presence. If you desire to make that decision today, I'm going to invite you to come up here and just let me pray for you. This is what God wants for Christmas. And everybody in this room will rejoice with you. I'm going to pray a quick prayer. If you desire to give your heart to Jesus, don't try to figure out right now exactly what you're going to have to do. God will embrace you and he'll, he'll take you to the next step. Believe me. There are people who've been through harder things than anybody, than anything that's holding you back right now. You've heard the testimonies. God, and God's no respecter of persons. But I'm going to pray a prayer. As soon as I'm done praying, we're going to start singing. And during that song, I want you to come up and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for expressing what you want from us, how you desire for us to be near you so that we might not sin. And thank you for ultimately manifesting yourself as an approachable, gentle child. Thank you, Lord, for making it easy to come to you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.